This morning's scripture reading will be taken from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's word. All right, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. So glad to have you. Um, If you're new, which this time of year we tend to have a lot of folks that are new, to the city, new to our church, new to Butler, um, new to Midtown. We're glad that you're here. We're starting a new uh, series, a vision series for the fall that's going to kind of guide us. And it's really a, uh, a remembering forward. So when we talk about vision here at Soma, we're not talking about uh, me as some kind of entrepreneur uh, dreaming up new ideas for the church. Uh, we're talking about uh, the way we define vision here at Soma as a spirit-led conviction uh, about what ought to be fueled by an imagination of what could be, right? Looking to the past and the ways that God has been working among us and then looking to the future and saying, God, do it again, do it again, and do it in a greater and deeper and more uh, impactful way. And so um, if you're new, let me just tell you a little about the story of our church. I'll try to summarize it quickly uh, as as kind of the old man here at Soma. I I can get long-winded with these stories, but uh, our our story is a very unlikely origin story uh, in many ways. We moved to the city about seven years ago, and my wife and I are four kids, five, four, two, and uh, one month old. Uh, moved to Indianapolis from South Florida, from Miami. Why we did that, I, I, only God would take us from Florida, from the beach to the middle of the cornfields here in Indiana. But we moved to the north side, and we, we wanted to plant a church, but we had kind of a vision for a different kind of start than maybe some churches uh, envision. Uh, for us, it wasn't about... Um, kind of this traditional entrepreneurial framework of let's launch a great church and let's try to attract a bunch of people to come to this church as consumers. Our framework was not launching, but rather loving. What would it look like for us to have a vision, not for launching a great church, but for being a part of loving a great city in the name of Jesus? And in our wildest imagination, we thought, man, if we could in 10 years have 200 people gathered together 
planting churches and loving our neighbors well and loving Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, wouldn't that be amazing, right? Wouldn't that be amazing for somebody from the South who's a UK fan to move up to Indianapolis and be a part of something like that, right? We had all kinds of strikes against us. And, and God just blew our minds. Like, that is not at all what happened. We, tr- we were really focused on on uh, discipleship and, and investing in leaders, and it was a small little cadre of people. Again, nothing impressive. Like, like our first service we launched uh, six years ago on Sunday nights over here at the Church of the Red Door at 52nd Central with a whopping 30 people at that gathering on Sunday night. I mean, it was amazing. But for me, having been in a megachurch for about a decade, it was awesome, right? Like I knew everybody's name, Right? There, was, there was nothing impressive about what we were doing. Our, our worship leader was in like a white t-shirt, right? And he was like 20 years old, and he had a suitcase kick drum. And I, you know, I preached for an hour. I'm sure like everybody was asleep at the end. There was just nothing very impressive about it. But um, about uh, nine months to a year in, something happened, and this thing just exploded. Like we were in six different locations around the city, and we were really focused on um, being what we call a missional church, right? A missional, gospel-centered church, loving Jesus, loving our neighbors, ourselves, really focused on being outward-facing to the community, and, and really our vision was to be a network of house churches that, that love the city uh, really well. We call, them, we call them missional communities. And, and so this is kind of the season, uh, I've heard one um, author say that um, in your 20s, he's kind of quoting some old mystics, that when you're young, uh, this basically called the season of struggling to get your life together, right? That was the season of struggling to get your life together. We were trying to get a church off the ground. We were trying to figure out our own lives. And then God just exploded this movement. We moved into Broderpool um, and started meeting on Sunday morning, and we went from like 60 people to 300 people in about six months. And really, <clears throat> that sounds awesome. It was awesome, and it was terrifying. Because it was never our goal to grow big, right? We wanted to be about depth. We wanted to be about discipleship. And, and so we were kind of for the next couple of years just reacting to what God was doing as we grew and, and we, we grew outward and, and, and we were just struggling to figure it out. About three years ago, so today is the three-year anniversary of Soma Downtown. We launched about uh, 70 or 80, we literally launched, get out of here, uh, 70 or 80 people to the downtown near East Side who were living down there to start Soma Church downtown. So now we had a child and yet we're still young parents trying to figure out what this thing looks like. And then about a year ago, we sent another 60 people to the northwest side who were already living on that side of town. They started Soma Northwest. So today is the three-year and the one-year anniversary of both of those congregations. Praise God. He's doing amazing things in those parts of the city. Um, I would... I would love to encourage you, if you have a moment today, not while I'm speaking here, but if you have a moment today, get on your phone, look up Pastor Kent's email address, their elders, their staff, encourage them. Um, God's doing amazing things in those parts of the city. But, but here we are, and we're still here. And we kind of about two years ago began to look around and go, okay, um, we want to have an identity that's more than just being the, uh, the birthing parent, you know? What are we about here other than starting churches? And, and I love this about our church. I love our church's heart to reach the city. I love our church's heart for planting churches. We've been able to plant five churches in six years, and I love that. I love the energy and the outward focus that it's not just about us in this church, but it's about what God is doing in 
the city. But about a year and a half ago, we began to realize, wow, we need to really pray and we really need to seek God for this next season. And, we, and we're moving from the struggle to get our life together to what the same author calls uh, the struggle to give our lives away. That's basically your 30s to about your 70s. And then your 70s and beyond is the struggle to give your death away. We are now in the season of struggling to give our lives away to maturing and realizing that um, God is inviting us to once again go deeper. He's inviting us to deepen our, uh, our imagination for what could be, to deepen our convictions about what ought to be. Last fall, um, we did a health survey. And so again, like for us, the measure of success is not how many, and we're glad that you're here, but how many of you show up on a Sunday morning and how much money you give to our church and how many facilities we have, that is not our metrics. Those are not our optics, right? We're, we're glad when those things happen, but they're byproducts. They're not the ends. So we did a health survey just to say, um, what's really happening in our community? How healthy are we? Because the goal is healthy churches, not just big churches. And so um, one of the things we noticed in this health survey last fall um, as we began to look to the future is that um, many of you are tired. Many of you are feeling overwhelmed, and the overwhelming majority of people uh, in our congregation um, are struggling to really live out a vision for discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus in their everyday lives. And it showed up in a number of different ways, but, but some things like rest. Like less than 10% of our church takes an actual Sabbath every week, right? It showed up in uh, the practice of what we call the spiritual disciplines, Bible reading and prayer and things like that. It's not that people aren't doing it. It's just very scattershot. It's very inconsistent. Um, and, and it's just indicative of we felt like a larger pattern of people um, tired and on the edge of, of burnout and in new seasons of life, some of you were single when you started here and you've gotten married and you're having kids and life circumstances are pressing on you. Some of you are in, in, just in massive seasons of depression and feeling overwhelmed. And again, that's not everyone. So we, I kind of find there's like two sets of people that hear a message like this very differently. Like some of you are like, what are you talking about? You're a total downer. Like you're always lamenting and talking about how tired you are. Okay, I'm 38. Right? Like I realize I'm kind of speaking to myself. Um, and there's some of us that are feeling that, just kind of disappointed, restless, feeling maybe a little stuck, um, a little wounded, a little fearful, and wanting God to do a deep work of renewal. Uh, and then there are some of you that are just like, let's go, right? Let's go. Let's celebrate. I'm ready. I'm a leader. I'm eager. Tell me how we're going to do this. I'm ready to see the gospel change everything. Just show me how, Right? Um, and both of those people exist here together. And so all that to say, we came up with a statement. So I'll share it with you. And yet, I don't care if you memorize this or not. This is, as we begin to ask God, what is next for us? What does the future look like for us? This became our prayer as we talked as an elder team and as a staff, as deacons, members of our church. This is kind of our five-year vision. This is the horizon that we're aiming for because we can't see beyond Five, I mean, if we're honest, we can't see beyond five days, but five years seem like enough for us to kind of pray and ask God for, to catalyze a movement of life-giving disciples, not just consumers, not just a crowd, life-giving disciples, who scheme together with a specific burden to bring God's renewing presence to their neighborhoods, networks, and the nations. And as we looked at that statement, we began to go, wow, what does it look like 
to be a life-giving disciple? How do with all these crowds of people now at the scale that we're at spread across the city, how do we pursue that vision? And it became clear to us last fall as our elders were on a retreat that there needed to be a shift, a shift in priority, not the North Star, not the direction we're heading, but how we're getting there and what we prioritize, a shift from um, a, a real emphasis on missional community to an emphasis on formation in community, right? It's not that we don't care about mission, and we're never going to stop caring about mission, but we begin to realize that if we're going to offer on an ongoing basis uh, a deepening experience of transformation and change to our community, we must have something authentic to offer our community, right? We cannot offer them burnout. We cannot offer them leftovers. We must offer them something genuinely different. This is the way we've kind of said it um, here, is that the greatest gift we feel like God is inviting us to give to our city is our transformed and transforming presence. Our transformed and transforming presence, which means that we ourselves need to have a vision for authentic transformation, to believe that it's possible, to see and to ask and to beg God to transform us from the inside out so that as we move out and we serve our city, as we protest and work against injustice, as we work and labor for the kingdom of God, that we are doing that from a place of inner strength, not a deficit, not just reacting against, not just saying what we're against, but actually embodying what we're for in a real way. So that's what this series is all about. It's kind of unpacking for us the why the what and the how of what we'll call spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, right? Spiritual formation um, is kind of a weird word, but let me just explain what we mean by that for you. This is what we're going to spend the fall exploring together, and really for the next couple of years, we're going to spend exploring together off and on as we teach on this and we seek to live into this vision. Spiritual formation for us means practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. There's two components of this that I just want to kind of in an intro way, summary way, unpack for us today. Um, we're just going to take the first half of the statement, so we're going to teach through this all fall. I want to take the first half of the statement, practicing the way of Jesus. Um, and that's going to be kind of our topic today. What do we mean by practicing the way of Jesus? Why practice? Why the way of Jesus? What do we mean by the way of Jesus? Lots of different people mean different things. If I went around this room and surveyed you and said, what is the way of Jesus to you? We'd probably get as many answers as there are people in this room. So I want us to clarify that. And I want to start with the vision. There's two components of this for us. One is the vision. If we're going to experience real transformation, we need a vision that we're chasing together. We need a vision for formation and then we need uh, practices that help move us towards that vision. So let's look here in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. I love this passage. When I was a young Christian, this is one of the first passages of Scripture that I memorized. And I think it's the best summary of what we're trying to get after here in the New Testament. So the vision for us is the way of Jesus. All right? If you don't have a vision for change change becomes futile, right? Like, if you're just at the gym 
cranking, you know, pumping out iron, if you're the CrossFit gym and you don't have a vision for something bigger than the practices, it becomes an exercise in futility, right? If you're just taking reps and you're never playing in the game, um, it, it's, it doesn't help. So here's what Peter says. He gives us a vision for transformation. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Here's the key. So that, in order that, here's the purpose statement. So that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers, participants of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, because of disordered desire. Now, if you are going to understand what Peter's taught, it sounds really weird. Divine power, corruption, evil desires, right? Promises, partaking of divine nature. This sounds like something that's for monks and mystics, right? Like, what does this have to do with you in the workplace tomorrow? What does this have to do with you as a young mom? What does this have to do with you on campus as a student? You got to know something about what, what, what Peter's talking about and about his biography, right? Like, our theology is always shaped by biography. And if you know anything about Peter, um, you know that this is rooted in his own story. He has actually experienced the divine power of God in his life. The way of Jesus came to him in such an unexpected way. Uh, and we spent the last year really going over this in the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm just going to recap it quickly. But basically, this started for Peter in Matthew chapter right? Matthew chapter 4, Jesus shows up after the temptation in the wilderness, and he preaches his first sermon, essentially says, repent. These are the first words of Jesus, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. Literally, it is change the way that you're thinking about your life. Turn around, like change your operating system for life. The kingdom of God is here, right? And Jesus calls this group of disciples, right, to follow him, to follow him. He says, I want you to become my disciples. I'll make you fishers of men, right? Um, and so to be a follower of Jesus was to be a part of what Peter's writing about here, to be an apprentice. That word disciple means student or learner, not like a student, like you go to class and take notes, okay? Not a follower like I'm a fan, you know, I'm a fan of Imagine Dragons, I'm a follower of this group, I subscribe to their podcast. To be a follower, Jesus is saying, is not just believing the right doctrine. It's not uh, identifying as a cultural Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I grew up going to church. To be a follower, to be an apprentice, Jesus is saying, is to reorient your life around his person and his teaching. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be formed into the image of Jesus. And, and make no mistake, we're all being formed. We all have a central organizing principle. You are being discipled and apprenticed every single day. The question is not, am I being formed and discipled? The question is, the question is into what and into whom am I being formed or discipled, right? You're being formed by capitalistic principles. You're being formed by an individualistic philosophy of life. You're being formed by uh, all kinds of things every single day. And the question is, are you being intentional about it, and are you aware of it? And Jesus says, I want to call you to center your life on me, to live into this vision of the kingdom of God, 
the kingdom of God is just the reign and the rule of God. The justice of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God, the world of love that is breaking into this world, that broke into this world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It changes everything. And so Peter, one of those who followed him, now invites us to experience that same transformation. It is participation in the way of Jesus. It is not being a spectator. It is not just believing the right things. It is being caught up in the divine life, right? That is the heart of discipleship. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors on this topic, says this. A disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is, Another important way of putting this is to say that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. Not that we do everything that Jesus does, but we are learning to do what he did as if he were here doing it through me, which the Bible says he is. This is the way of Jesus. And it is a way, right? It's not just a dogma. It's not just a, an ethical vision. It is a way of life. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, in the book of Acts, at least four times, Christians were called part of the way, right? They are part of the way of this Jesus. It is a way of life. So what is the way of Jesus that Peter lays out for us? Let me just give you a simple framework that we'll follow, and we're going to preach on each one of these over the next couple weeks in succession, but I want to lay out for you what I think is one way, it's not the only way, but one way to kind of think about uh, the way of Jesus in a way that's simple that you can grab onto and maybe take with you this week. The way of Jesus is simply this, being with Jesus, with this vision in mind, becoming like him, and doing what he did. Being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he did. Where do you see that in the text? Being with him, right? This idea of the knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge in the New Testament is never about just your head. It involves your head, but it is about the relational reality between you and God. That following Jesus is a relationship. It is not just thinking the right things. It's not just doing moral things, right? You can do those things and absolutely not have a relationship with Jesus, right? It is a relationship. I think of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 for the Ephesians. I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that you would have a knowledge of him, the height, the width, the breadth, the depth that surpasses understanding. Wow. You would know in here that you are loved by God. How hard is that? And how often do we forget that? Be with him. So we're going to talk about the classic spiritual disciplines. That's how we learn to be with him, right? Prayer and fasting. And one that's going to scare many of you to death. Silence and solitude and Sabbath, a Sabbath way of life. Is that even possible in the age in which we live? It is. Not only is it possible, it is impossible to be with Jesus unless you do it. Being with him, relating to him as your father, not just as your executive assistant who gets crap done for you. 
becoming like him. Luke chapter 6, I think I have this verse on the screen. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Peter says, He's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that we would become partakers of the divine nature, so that God's life would literally begin to flow into us and permeate us, and that we would begin to look like him. He says, for if these qualities are are yours and are increasing, right? There's this idea that we ought to be growing, that ought to be increasing. the, The word here is abundance that overflows, We ought to be more and more sharing the DNA of God in our everyday life. It is a process, thank the Lord, it is a process, and Peter knew that process, lots of failures for Peter, but it is inside out, not outside in. Being with him, becoming like him, and then learning to do what he did, right? That's all this list is, it's just the life of Jesus, faith, love, knowledge, virtue, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These are all characteristics of the way that Jesus lived his life, and he invites us to live ours. Now, I start there, and I want to just move on because it's really important that we have a vision, or else this just becomes another list of to-dos. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm weary of to-do lists. I'm weary of people telling me what I need to do to become a better Christian, right? And some of you, you've been there, right? Like, you've been there, and you've tried that, right? You tried really hard to be a better Christian. That's not what this is about. This is about a vision for a new way of being human, a new way of life, Jesus says, a transformation that starts on the inside and just bursts out of you. I love this quote by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the author of The Little Prince. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's what we're doing. We're teaching you to long for the sea, long for the sea of transformation. And these things don't become duty, they become delight. How do we actually do that? That's the other piece of the statement. The way of Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus. Peter says this won't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen accidentally. You don't just occasionally do this. Notice here, and this language is going to make some of us very uncomfortable. Some of us that love grace. Some of us that like to talk about gospel-centered faith, and it's all about just trusting Jesus. Well, that's not the language of Peter at all. He says, yeah, his divine power, that's a terrifying verse, by the way. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. God has installed hardware in you that's going to make it impossible for you to not change and grow. And by the way, he's given you everything you need. Everything. You have, in other words, you have no excuse. God himself lives in you, and he's going to change you. But it doesn't just happen accidentally. Notice what Peter says. Make every effort. What? I have to sweat in Christianity? Be diligent, he says. If you practice these qualities in increasing measure, then these things will happen. What? Peter, you legalist. You tricked me. 
You told me it was divine power. Now you're telling me to work hard. Which is it? And Peter would say, yes, both. Yes, both. This is not legalism, right? This is not try harder. God is not some overbearing father telling us to work harder. This is not God beating us with a stick. This is God inviting us with a carrot, but he says it's going to be work. Now, listen to this because you must hear this. If you miss what I'm saying right now, you miss this entire message. This, what I'm about to say about practice and what Peter is saying here about transformation, he is not saying if you do these things, you earn a seat at the table with God, right? No. This is not an entrance requirement to get into the kingdom. It is training for how to live once you're already in. It is training for how to live once you've encountered the grace of God, the divine power of God, and you are participating in life with God. Now Peter's saying, let me help you get better at living this Christian life that God has called us to, this process of transformation. This is not about being a good person. This is about how to live once the goodness of God has come into your life and is transforming you, okay? Don't miss that. His divine power is in us and is the fuel, it is the engine for transformation. But he gives us practical means training to help us move forward in the Christian life. He uses this word supplement. He says, supplement your faith. This idea of supplement, is a, it's, it's an economic term. It's a financial term. It's, it's for investment. He's saying, you're going to have to make an investment here. This is like a patronage term. This was uh, actually used for uh, bankers and other wealthy affluent folks that would uh, bankroll chor- chorale, like chorus-type singings and musical performances. That's exactly what he's talking about here with this word supplement. It is an investment. You're going to have to make an effort. You're going to have to be intentional. I love, again, Dallas Willard. Uh, this whole sermon could just be uh, Dallas Willard 101, uh, but I love, uh, if you haven't read any of his books, I'd encourage you to read uh, The Divine Conspiracy or others, but here's what he says. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We do not drift into discipleship. We must be intentional. Now, let me make a distinction here between uh, what we might call training and trying right? John Ortberg, in his book, The The Life You Always Wanted, uses this illustration, and I think it's one of the best I've ever heard. He says, imagine that the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee comes to your house, and you're on your couch eating Twinkies and Cheetos and doing whatever you do at home at night, and, um, you know, know, GMO, non-GMO food, I don't know what you do, but let's just imagine you're doing that, and they show up at their house, and they say, hey, this is probably real. We've been tracking your life statistics. They're probably doing this, okay? And we have found that out of all 300 people, million people in the United States, your bone structure, your genetics, your DNA, you are uh, the perfect candidate to win the gold medal for the United States next year in the marathon, the triathlon or whatever this might be. And so you get excited about that. You're like, yes, I I got the perfect, okay, like let's do this. And so you go out and you're like, I'm going to go run a triathlon. I'm going to go run a marathon. And you go to, uh, you know, a marathon, the running store, whatever that is. You can tell I don't run marathons. You go to the running store. You're like, hey, the U.S. Olympics Committee told me I'm going to be the next gold medalist. I need a training plan. And so they take you and they give you uh, a crash course on running and on the body and on nutrition and on the right kinds of shoes and the right kinds of gear so you don't chafe and bleed out and all this stuff. And, and um, yeah, I know a little bit about that. And, uh 
And so they say, all right, here's your, here's your crash course. It's all on this little disc right here, this MP3 on this Google Drive. We're going to share this drive with you. Come back again next week, and we'll have the second part of the course. And you never actually get it. So then the marathon comes, and you just throw yourself into the race, and you try to run 26 plus miles. What do you think is going to happen? I had a roommate that did this in college. He was an idiot. He would literally just in, enter himself into a marathon and then like die for three days. You will die. That's a recipe for death. That, like I don't care how hard you try. You cannot be a consistent marathon runner living that way. You must do what? Train. You must train. You must have a training plan, like the Higdon plan or whatever. You've got to have a plan. You start by running a half a mile, and then a mile, and two miles. It's, I don't care how hard you try. You can't try your way into a marathon. You must train in order to become the kind of person who can run marathons. That's exactly what Peter's talking about here. Training, not trying. As a side note, that's exactly what the church does, by the way, usually when we try to run the marathon of life, hey, we got this course. Come, come listen. We're going to come teach this class. Good luck trying it out in the real world. That's kind of like how we do discipleship. Here's the course. Here's the shoes. Here's the gear you need. Good luck. No, it's practice. Practice. So that we become the kinds of people who can run marathons. So that we can become the kind of people who can live into Jesus' kingdom vision. Donald Craybill says it like this, discipleship is usually not a grand calling or a spectacular act of martyrdom. Rather, it is a set of Christ-like instincts. I love that phrase. Christ-like instincts and reflexive responses of love that gradually take shape in our lives over a period of years. We immerse ourselves in Scripture in an awareness of His presence, and I would add community, and he says that too. Then when we have to respond quickly to a life situation, we are more likely to act in a way that is a credit to our Lord. Practice. 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is all over the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me give you, if you could fast forward to that slide there, 1 Timothy 4. Train yourself for godliness. That word train there is the word for gymnasium. You're going to have to sweat, he says. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I'm going to skip on down. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Paul says it is possible, even as a pastor, young Timothy, to neglect the gift of God in you, to not fan it into flame. He says, don't neglect your gift. It must be cultivated, right? It must, there must be intentionality to raise it up. First Corinthians 9, Paul says a very similar thing. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Train yourself, he says. One of the best examples that I could point you to, and I wish I had time to tell this whole story, is an article that I came across this week. You could throw up that first picture um, from the civil rights movement in the 1960s. This was just, on the, just before uh, one of the sit-ins that they were organizing uh, a, a in Virginia. 
in the 1960s. We think of the civil rights movement as just something maybe that happened, right? And we don't understand all the ins and the outs and all the things that went into it and the training that had to happen for the way of Jesus, nonviolent resistance, Dr. King's vision rooted in the way of Jesus took a lot of training. As a matter of fact, it's what he spent the majority of his time doing. And so right before these sit-ins and protests, they would gather their new recruits in, mostly people your age in this room in their 20s, and they would train them in the ways of nonviolent resistance, which run countercultural to our normal human reflexes. And so they would gather them together, got two pictures, and they would blow smoke in their face, and they would curse at them, and they would kick them, and they would pull on their chest hair, and they would do whatever they could to try to get them to respond, just as they were going to face as they were out on the soil. The next picture, you have a picture of children. They would splash water on their faces, and they would treat them as they were going to be treated at these lunch counters. Because they knew that nonviolent resistance doesn't come naturally, and we have to be trained into a new way of living. That is the essence of what Jesus is saying, what Peter is saying to us. We must be trained. We must learn a new way of living in the world, and it only comes through practice. Practice. So, let me just close with some practical advice on how to get started. And I want to just kind of give you a vision for where this series is going, right? Practicing the way of Jesus, being with him, becoming like him, doing what he did. How do we start practicing, right? Because we don't want this to be like when you're trying to get in shape. Again, I just use my own life experience here, trying to get in shape. This is the time of year after the summer when my pants are feeling really tight. Like right now, my pants feel tight, just so you know. Um, And I was telling my wife this morning, she like, Iron, iron my stuff, and she, I was just like, these feel so uncomfortable. I, I've got to get back, like, to the gym. Um, so that's always August for me, not January. Um, just enjoyed summer a little bit too much. But um, I don't want this to be a thing where, like, you go and you crash the gym, and then what happens, 40, it's not 24 hours, 48 hours later, you're so sore that you can't move. And some of you are going to go do that. You're like, yes, formation, practicing the way of Jesus. I'm going to go become a patient person. I'm going to become a forgiving person. And by Wednesday, you have like destroyed yourself and everyone around you hates you. And you're just like, I can't do it. I'm tapping out. Okay, let me save you from some of that just with some encouragement. Three encouragements practically. One, start with awareness. <laughs> awareness. Where am I really, right? Like, not where would I like to be. Where am I really right now, right? Practice, he says, Peter says, keeps us from being and becoming unfruitful, ineffective, and self-deceived blind. We all have blind spots. We have things that we're missing. We think we're forgiving people, but just ask the person sitting next to you. You're not, okay? We think we're patient, but we're not. We think that, you know, we're great at, we're kind of like mastering this Christianity thing, but we're not. So the first question is, where am I actually? It's getting on the scales and facing brutal reality, right? And it's coming face to face with who you really are. Start with awareness. Then experimentation, right? We want to encourage you to experiment. What action can I take this week to move the needle, right? Prayerfully, thoughtfully, circumspectly, but experiment. I want you to think of church, and I want you to think of spiritual formation, not as a museum where you go to look at relics of the past. Hmm, that's interesting. 
But that doesn't apply to like this digital world that we're living. No, experiment. Like we're learning, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to do what pleases the Lord. We're learning. We don't know. I don't know what prayer looks like for you. I don't know what it looks like to own your past and your story. I don't know what it looks like to pursue justice and reconciliation in your world, in your season of life. So you've got to experiment. Move from a museum mentality to an artist studio mentality, right? To an R&D. This is research and development in community. And we can't be afraid to fail, right? Failure and weakness is the place of growth and transformation. And so we've got to take short-term experience, mid-term experiments, right? It's just learning to listen to the voice of God. God, what do you want me to do this week? And then just having this simple but very difficult inclination to actually, and this is amazing, actually do what he tells you to do, right? Actually do what he tells you to do. What would it look like for me to practice silence this week and just shut up? Imagine how much better your life would be if you would just shut up about 90% more. Just be quiet. Listen, pay attention. When God calls you to pray for somebody, you actually pray for them on the spot. Not, I'm going to pray for you, but you actually do it. You actually share the gospel with your coworker instead of like, you know, trying to like virtue signal and, hey, look at me. You actually just say, hey, have you met Jesus? What do you think about him? Let's talk about that. Can we grab a drink after work today? I don't know what that looks like, but it's just a lot of experimentation projects, right? Like trying some things out and asking God to help you. And then finally, support. Who can I trust to help me on this journey? We need others to help us. We need to do this in the context of community. What needs to change in your missional community, in your approach to discipleship, to transition from just being a place where we come to talk about spiritual formation to a place where we are a community of practice actually doing spiritual formation, right? Instead of talking about prayer and discussing it, we just get together and pray. Instead of talking about fasting, we just fast, right? Instead of talking about uh, doing justice, we actually go out and do it. Instead of talking about selling our possessions and giving them to the poor, we actually say, hey, over the next four weeks, let's actually take Jesus at his word and just try to do what he told us to do. And let's see what happens. Let's see how much life would change in that scary place. That is the invitation of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be doing in this series, laying out for you the practices so that we together can train ourselves for godliness. We're going to do that throughout this series, and then into next year, we're going to have teachings and little smaller sermon series. We're going to invite you to do that in community. We're going to teach you how to do it, and then we're going to say, hey, go do this this week, and let's come back, and let's talk about how it went. Let's do that together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go to communion. Father, thank you for your divine power, which has given us all that we need for life and godliness. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to give us a vision for the way of Jesus, the kingdom of love breaking in among us. God, help teach us to long for that, to desire that. Without that, God, practices are nothing. Practices are cold, dead rituals. But God, would you, by your spirit, help us to see that that is the goal, that is the vision, not the practices, but Jesus, but the kingdom of God, your love breaking out through us and spilling out into our communities. 
God, help us to train ourselves. Give us the strength and the discipline and the courage and the wisdom to experiment, to be vulnerable in community, entrusting ourselves to fellow journeyers and pilgrims who also are trying to figure out the way of Jesus. Help us to do this together, to experiment our way forward, not to be stuck in thinking about or trying to just discuss our way forward. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we know that Peter...